So I have to I have to follow that now, huh? All right, Phil. Hey, great job, man. Seriously, every week. Aren't these guys awesome? Week in and week out. No matter how many guys are up on the stage, they always bring or well, yeah. It was kind of unanimous. Guys, guys and girls. You guys are awesome. Thanks so much. This week, we are starting a new series on the Ten Commandments. And while I'm no Charlton Heston, and I don't have a white beard or a glowing face, I do want to share some of the Ten Commandments with you. And I think we have, yeah, there he is, good-looking dude. So uh, I want to start out by giving you a little background on the Ten Commandments uh, that I think will help us understand what they are and why they're important and uh, what their purpose is for us. But before we do that, I have a, a little uh, fun way of helping us remember the Ten Commandments. Now, when you were a kid and you tried to memorize lists as a very young child, what did you do to help remember these things? Songs. You guys think I'm going to sing? No. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I am. I am going to sing. You guys are good. You got it. All right, so I'm going to sing these, and uh, it may not be to the level that Phil would sing them. I thought about having him play his guitar, and I thought, no, we'll just, we'll just do this. We're going to have fun. They're going to be up on the screen, and the, the melody is very simple and repeats, so you guys can join me in singing them as we go on, and uh, hopefully by the time we're done, you guys will all know what the Ten Commandments are. So you guys, you guys ready? Okay, there's like six of you that are ready. Are, you, are the rest of you guys ready to learn these? All right, <clears throat> so I'm just going to pick a key, and then we're going to sing, and if it sounds awful, well, then you guys will remember it that much better. You guys, after like the first two, I'm expecting some crowd participation, okay? All right. Number one, we've just begun. God should be first in your life. Number two's the idol rule. Those graven images aren't nice. Number three, God's name should be never spoken in jest. Number four, the Sabbath's for our worship and for rest. Number five, we all should strive to honor father and mother. Number six, don't get your kicks from killing one another. Number seven, life is heaven when you're true to your mate. Number eight, don't steal and break this rule for goodness sake. Number nine, don't be the kind that goes around telling lies. Number ten, don't covet when you see your neighbor's house or wife. That's the list that God insists we stay away from these sins. That is why we memorize commandments one through ten. All right, so there's two great things to what we just did. One, well, three. One, I started a little higher than I wanted to, but that's okay. You guys will deal with that. The second great thing is now that song that's been stuck in my head for like 20 years is now going to be stuck in all of your heads for 20 years. And the third thing, and this is a positive effect, I hope, is that that will help you remember the Ten Commandments. So the next time someone says, what one was the one about stealing? You can sing through that song and remember it because that's how I did this whole message was by singing that song every time I was writing stuff down. So if you guys want to look it up, it's called The Perfect Ten. Pull it up on YouTube. It's the first result and uh, learn it and teach it to your kids. There's some really cool videos that go along with it. Would you take a moment to pray with me as we begin? Father God, thank you for the stories standing for Exodus, for the story of the Ten Commandments, God. I ask that we, who you are, as we dive into the study of Exodus and into the Ten Commandments. Father, please help us remember what we learned during these next few weeks and help us to use it to better love you and show your love to one another. And it's in Jesus' holy name we ask this. Amen. 
This series is on the Ten Commandments, not the entire book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. It's not on the beginning of the Old Testament. However, I do want to give you some context as to why the Ten Commandments are important and why we need to learn them. So I'm going to summarize the first 20 or so chapters of Exodus, and since I only have a short amount of time, we're going to go through this pretty quickly. So you guys want to hear a little history? Okay, how about this? For those of you who don't care as much about history, who's ready for story time? (laughs) Story time. Okay, so Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Following this death, the people of Israel grew into great numbers, and Egypt and Pharaoh were terrified from this. Pharaoh wanted to keep the number of the Israelites in check because he thought if we ever go to war, the Israelites will join opposing forces and outnumber the Egyptians and overpower us. So he came up with a plan. Let's enslave the Israelites. Let's keep them in submission. That will keep them in check and let them know that we are in charge. So the Israelites are slaves to the Egyptians for over 400 years. Now, that's a really, really long time. That could be a message in itself about waiting for God to answer prayer because even though you may ask for something and think that it's not going to happen, 400 years, the Israelites had to wait to be delivered from oppression. Enter into the scene Moses. As I mentioned, Pharaoh was trying to stop the overpowering forces of the Israelites, so he starts taking drastic measures. He tries to inflict population control. He tells the midwives that when the Israelite women are delivering, if it's a boy, that they are to kill the child on childbirth, and if it's a girl, let the child live. But the midwives feared God, and they knew they couldn't do this. So they did not kill any of the baby boys. And Pharaoh got wind of this as the population still continued to grow, and he asks them, why have you not killed the baby boys, and they say, it is because the Israelite women are so strong, they deliver the baby so quickly that we can't get there in time to kill the babies. And, and God gave them favor, and Pharaoh let them live. But then Pharaoh, still worried about population, the population of the Israelites being out of control, he, he makes this decree. He says, all infant boys of the Israelites must be thrown into the Nile River. So Moses is born right in this time frame, and his mother tries to protect him from that. So she puts him in a basket and floats him down the Nile River, and he's floating down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, and she has one of her servants go and get the basket, and Moses starts crying as a three-month-old, and she has pity on him and wants to save this child. So this is the coolest part of this part of the story. Instead of Moses being killed like he should have been, thrown in the Nile and lose his life, God had a plan for him. And the very people that were trying to kill him ended up saving his life. And this is so cool how God provides because then Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses, unknowing to her, back to Moses' mother to raise him. So Moses' mother actually got to raise him. And to take it a step further to show of God's provision, she pays Moses' mother for the expenses for raising this child. So God took the wealth of the wicked, the wealth of Pharaoh and his evil intent of killing the children and Moses and used it to provide for Moses as he grows up. That's just such a cool example of how God provides for his people. Moses grows up a little bit, and he's back in the palace with his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter. And some years later, he's out checking in on his people, and he sees an Egyptian 
slave driver beating one of his people, an Israelite. And he gets upset, and he kills the Egyptians. The wilderness. War gets back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, and Moses miss. He goes to a land called Midian. He meets his wife. He has some kids. And he's there wondering, when is God going to fulfill his promise to deliver my people? So, this timeline, I think, is especially interesting. Decades and decades go by. And Moses is thinking, God, when are you going to fulfill this promise? And at 80 years old, at 80 years old, God decides to speak to Moses with a burning bush. 80 years old. God chose him at 80 years to perform the largest exodus of slaves ever. Moses' primary role in the Bible didn't start until he was 80 years old. His time in ministry was just picking up, and he served the Lord for many years to follow. Now, someone in here needed to hear that because someone in here has just hit 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years old, and they think that their time is over. But I'm here to tell you that it is not. God started using Moses when he was 80, and he can start using him. As long as there's breath in your lungs, God can use you if you'll let him. And even past, when you have breath in your lungs, God can continue to use you. Moses is an example of this. We are here thousands of years later, and here we are talking about him and using his stories to learn and to better ourselves. A more personal example of this I picked up in the last week. A few weeks ago, my grandma Cora passed away. She was a, a beautiful example of what a true believer in Jesus should look like. She truly loved the Lord, and she had a relationship with Jesus that I can only aspire to have. Grandma Cora had attended the same church about 20 minutes away from her house for the last 33 years. You heard that right, 33 years in the same church. She drove 20 minutes each way to get there, week after week, year after year. She didn't concern herself with if she liked the music styles, if she liked the small groups, if she liked the extracurricular church functions. She focused on getting into a church family and being faithful. At the funeral, the pastor who officiated, this man was an anointed man of God. He delivered a powerful message, and he told this story that my grandfather had told him the week of my grandmother's passing. Every night, my grandma Cora spent an hour in the Word, an hour reading and meditating and taking the Holy Word of God in. And every night, she spent an hour on her face before the throne of God Almighty in prayer. My grandma, my grandpa's told me every time that I've seen him since the funeral, every time he's told me that my grandma prayed for me every single day. She took time out of her day to get on her face before God Almighty and pray for me. She took time to go before God on my behalf. And I now have a life that's reaping the benefits of that. I am overwhelmingly blessed. I'm surrounded by loving people. And day after day, I reap the benefits of my grandmother's faithfulness and her faithful prayers. Grandma, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the example that you are. I want to thank you for loving me so much. I want to thank you for constantly covering me and our family in prayer and for being the example that you are. Grandma Cor got it, and now she is with Jesus. 
She understood what it was like to have a relationship with Jesus. And not just to say that you're a Christian, but to live a life spending time with the Lord daily. As the pastor continued with the service, he told us that my grandpa instructed him to bring a strong gospel message that day. He knew that it's what my grandmother would have wanted. And even in her death, in the pain and the loss and the loneliness that followed for our family, she made sure that Jesus would be lifted high. And at our grandmother's funeral service, five people gave their lives to Jesus. Even in her death, her legacy continued, and God still used her. So if you think that your time is up and that you're past the point in your life where God can use you, that is simply not true because God used Moses. At 80 years old, he used my grandmother as she passed into a life with Jesus. She used them to continue the legacy. God's not done using you. He will never be done using you as long as you're willing. So back to Moses. Moses, at 80 years old, gets his calling from God, and he's still not confident in what God is calling him to do, and he argues with God, saying that I'm not good enough. I can't speak before Pharaoh. I'm not good with words. And God says, who made man's mouth? Who made the deaf, the mute, the singer, the blind? Did not I? Now go. And Moses hears that from the creator, the one who made him speak, and still isn't listening, still arguing. So God says, okay, okay, we'll send your brother with you. So he sends his brother Aaron, and they go into Egypt, and he goes before Pharaoh, and he goes before Pharaoh trying to tell him that God has sent him. And now at this time, Pharaoh thinks he's a god, so for someone to say that God has sent me, it's going to upset Pharaoh, but God protected Moses from Pharaoh's wrath. He gives Moses these miraculous signs to show Pharaoh. He gives him a staff. He takes a staff, and he says, throw it on the ground, and it will turn into a snake, and it turns into a snake. It's a pretty cool miraculous sign but Pharaoh's magicians they pull up and do the same thing and so Pharaoh's unimpressed and then Moses's staff eats their staffs as God establishes that he is the one true God he turns water into blood he puts his hand in his cloak and pulls it out and it's covered in a skin disease he puts it back in and it's healed and Pharaoh is still not listening so God says I'm going to show you signs to show you, Pharaoh, to show you, Egypt, that I am the one true God and that no one else, no other gods can do what I can do. No other gods are the God like I am. So bring on the plagues. I was going to have LD put some echo on that. Plagues, plagues, plagues. So there it is. Plague number one. We have some brilliant illustrations that I found on the Internet and some of them are just fantastic. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the fantastic ones. The Nile turns to blood. Now, this in itself is pretty disgusting be because the Nile, the, the river, is a blood. That's pretty gross. But the severity of this is so much greater than just meets the eye because the Nile was Egypt's lifeline. Without it, Egypt would dry up, crops would die, livestock couldn't live, and Egypt would be desolate. With the water as blood, the Nile loses its life-giving power. All the fish died because the Nile was blood, and I cannot imagine that this smelled very good. So Egypt is experiencing a very large problem. Now, this enough for me would make me think, okay, this God has got some power. I probably should just let these people go because he's going to mess us up if I don't. And, and Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let them go, and, and Moses turns the the blood back to water, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart and changes his mind. The next one is frogs. 
frogs swarmed out of the Nile and filled every part of the country. The fields, the land, the houses, everywhere. There are frogs everywhere. And one or two, I can't imagine, would be that big of a problem, but just, just everywhere. And, and God stops the frogs from coming. The frogs die, and they heap them up in the streets. And just, again, this horrible odor of dead frogs. Then Moses hits the ground, creating dust, and the dust comes up and becomes gnats. Some translations said mosquitoes. Just whatever these gnats, these small insects were, it was very unpleasant. They covered man and animal alike. And, and then, of course, Pharaoh says, I'll let people go, and they take the gnats away, and then Pharaoh changes his mind again. Then a plague of flies, and we all know how annoying a single fly can be, but a plague of flies, that, that one's not very good. Then a plague on the livestock. All the livestock in the land of Egypt died during this. And killing the livestock had horrible repercussions because you lose your food, you lose your workforce out in the fields. It would hurt the economy. It would hurt the people. It was also a blatant mockery of some of the gods, Hathor and Apis, some gods that the Egyptians worshipped in the form of livestock. The next plague was a plague of boils. Now this one sounds horrible. Boils all over the skin, so the skin disease I, I just envision what this would look like and something like that. And, of course, they're all distraught because I, I th- this, this looks absolutely horrendous. And then number seven. Now, there have been a distinction on several of these plagues that only the Egyptians were affected by these. So the Israelites, even though they were in the land of Egypt still, they weren't affected. God protected the land where the, Egypt, where the Israelites were while the Egyptians were being affected. So hail comes in and destroys everything in its path. If you were outside, the Bible says that you were killed. Animals were killed. Anyone who left anything outside was destroyed or killed. Crops, everything devastated. And then locusts, the eighth plague. Locusts came into the land and killed everything that the hail didn't get. The locusts destroyed. Now, the mere threat of a plague of locusts was enough to scare Pharaoh's magicians into pleading him to let the people go. So the locusts were so terrifying to the people of Egypt that they went before Pharaoh and pleaded, let the Israelites go. We cannot handle a plague of locusts, especially after what God has already sent our way. So the magicians are starting to see the power of the one true God. God is starting to reveal himself and these people are starting to see it, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then darkness A severe darkness covered Egypt for three days, but it did not affect the Israeli people. And this picture, I think, is kind of funny because if you didn't have the light on the left, you might think that the screen's just blank, but you see Pharaoh over there in the dark, and then God is shining his light on, I'm assuming that's Moses and Aaron in that picture. (laughs) And then 10, the final and most severe of all plagues. This was a plague that finally broke Pharaoh the death of all firstborn males. If you're a firstborn male in here, raise up your hand. All right. If you were an Egyptian, you're dead. So if you were in Egypt at this time, this plague would have taken your life. That's your kids, your husbands, your fathers, your animals, firstborn male killed. However, The plague spared the Israelite people as long as they followed God's instructions. They were to kill an unblemished goat or lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and lentils. And the video of this occurring, the slides that we have on the screen right now, the video of this cartoon is really, really funny when they cut off the lamb's head. 
not to take away from the importance of it because this was God's order. And if you did this, if you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, then the spirit of death would pass over your house and let the firstborn live. That's where we get the term Passover. So after this, Pharaoh is finally ready to let the people go. He doesn't only tell them they can leave, but he orders their exit. He doesn't just say, fine, you can go. He says, get out, leave us. And the Egyptians are so excited to see the Israelites go that they give them whatever they wanted. The Israelites stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. They left with many beautiful articles of clothing, fine linens, jewelry, cattle, and so on. God's people were guided on their way with a visible sign of God's protection and guidance in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. This was with them the entire time they were waiting to get to the promised land. As the Israelites are on their way to the promised land, they approach the Red Sea, and God parts the sea, the Bible says, with a strong east wind. He causes the sea to dry up so the Israelites can pass through. And they pass through, and the army is close behind them. The Egyptian army is close behind them. And as the Israelites are passing through, God causes chaos and disorder, and he he causes the chariots to break on the Egyptians, and they get stuck in the mud, and they get stuck down in the river, and then God closes the river in and destroys the Egyptians, and the word of God says that not one of them were ever seen again. Then the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, an entire generation, because of their ongoing complaining. And even during that complaining, God is still good to them. During their, their complaining and their arguing and their bickering and their, their whining to God, he's still good for them. They're saying they're hungry, so God gives them this bread-like substance called manna. He gives them quail, and he provides it for them every day, except on the Sabbath day. And the Israelites start complaining yet again. Now they have meat and bread, and now they're saying, we're thirsty. Moses, did you just bring us out into the wilderness to die of thirst? So they're complaining again. Even after all the miracles they've seen, they're complaining yet again. Miracle after miracle, they complain. Now, I have a visual aid to help set these commandments in stone. Any, anybody? Okay. Deuteronomy 10.1 says, At that time the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. Also make a wooden ark, a sacred chest to store them in. Come up to me on the mountain, and I will write on the tablets the same words that were on the ones you smashed, and place the tablets in the ark. So what we have here is a very close replica of the ark of the covenant. Now, we don't know exactly what it looked like because it still hasn't been found, but we do know from the dimensions and the specifications that the Bible gave us, this is about the size that it was, and this is about what it looked like. Now, this was crafted by men with God's instruction to hold the Ten Commandment tablets and a few other articles, and I thought it would be really cool to bring out so you guys could have a cool visual to remember this series. And if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to have to Google Ark of the Covenant and see what it looks like because it's really, really, really cool. Someone very near and dear to my heart made this years back for another church, and for some reason, they still had it in storage, probably because it's super, super awesome. In fact, they actually carved these cherubim on top, and I actually shouldn't be touching this because if I did, I would surely die. But this isn't the real Ark, so <laughs> it's a replica. And uh, I also had a set of tablets I don't know what I did with them. They're probably in there. 
Anyway, so uh, let's pick up uh, in Deuteronomy. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him and serve him with all your heart and soul. You must always obey the Lord's commandments and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. This brings us to the main part of the study. The Ten Commandments are broken into two main ideas. The first four are talking about a relationship with God and the regulations and ideals that go along with that. And the the fifth through tenth commandments are helping us in our relationships with people, with, with other humans. The Ten Commandments typically have a stigma that they're just rules to make our lives boring and not fun. But in reality, they're a set of guidelines to help us better our relationship with God and others. And Jesus actually explains this in Matthew and I'm going to read an excerpt from Matthew chapter 22 to you. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. Expert in religious law. You have to be careful about the people who claim to be experts in the Bible. This is why you need to learn the Bible. So when someone claims that they know the Bible and that they think This is how God has spoken. You need to know the word of God so you know what God actually has said. So someone, an expert in religious law, tried to trap trap Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses. Then Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law All the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The entire law are based on those two commandments. So love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And all ten commandments can be summarized into those two that Jesus said. Jesus isn't saying the other commandments aren't important. He's saying that these two ideas, if we put them in our heart, that the rest of the commandments will fall in line naturally. So let's pick pick up in Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 1. Then God gave all the people these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. So before God ever tells them what the commandments are, before he ever gives them laws and rules, he reminds them, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. A common misconception about the Ten Commandments or the Bible in general is that it's just a set of rules. It's just a set of do's and don'ts. And while the Ten Commandments are more specifically rules than the rest of the Bible, that doesn't mean that they're just a list of thou shalt and thou shalt nots. The verse immediately preceding the Ten Commandments to the Israelites is a reminder for what God did for them. The relationship with God's people was established well before the law was set. This sets the very tone in which the law was written and given to the people. It wasn't just God telling them what to do. It was God helping the people live their lives in the way God intended. Before God ever told them what they could and couldn't do, he saved them from slavery. And we just went over all the miraculous things that God did to free the people from bondage. And once they were freed, they still went back to griping. They still went back to complaining, saying things like, why did God bring us out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? And over and over again, God shows his goodness to the people. The people kept forgetting the miraculous deliverance that they just experienced, and they complained. However, with that being said, God continued to pour out his blessings on them. Now, we can look at the Israelites and think, why would they do that? How ungrateful. But isn't that exactly what we do day after day? 
Don't we forget about the infinite blessings that God has bestowed on us and complain about what we have and don't have? Yet even in our ingratitude and our complaining and our murmuring and whining, God is good to us. How do you know that? Put your hands over your heart and feel that. That's your heart beating, pumping life through your veins. As I was driving here today, I felt my heart start beating and I felt God say, that is a miracle that you need to not forget. Just like the Israelites kept forgetting and there are days where I complain, the heart beating over 80,000 times every day, a beat to push life into your veins. 80,000 times, every single day the heart beats, a miraculous beat pushing life into your veins. Yet we can forget how good God is to us day after day. Another example of people going outside of God's plan for them was during the time when Moses was up in the mountains. Scripture tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days, and in the meantime, the people started to worry. They started to question, where is Moses? What has happened to this Moses character? And they start complaining to Aaron saying, we need a God to worship. So what do they do? They take gold from their jewelry and they bring it to Aaron and Aaron melts it down and makes an idol. He casts a golden calf for the people to worship. Exodus 32, 19 says, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they had made and he burned it and that is why in Deuteronomy 10, 1, it says, at that time the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. That's a little bit of trivial knowledge for you. There actually were two sets of tablets, and Moses broke the first ones because why God was writing on the tablets with his finger, while God was crafting the Ten Commandment tablets, the Israelites were down there making a mockery of him by creating a calf to worship the people, after all those miracles, kept doubting God. And you can see why God deemed it necessary to give the laws for the people to follow. It seemed that even God's chosen people were in need of guidance. They needed instruction as to how they were supposed to worship because they were just as lost as the rest of us when it comes to how and who we should worship. So let's pick up back in chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, and let's see what God says about things like the golden calf. This is the first commandment. Exodus 20. Verse 3, you must not have any other God but me. You must not have any other God but me. This first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. The commandment, this rule is paramount to the success of our relationship as Christ followers. Remember, these guidelines are here to help us in our relationships. In this case, it's to help us with our relationship with God. And the second commandment follows closely behind with a similar theme and ironically, as Moses is up there getting these rules, the Israelites are below creating this, this idol to worship. Exodus 20, verse 4, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. These two commandments seemingly go hand in hand. The first commandment is very cut and dry. The hierarchy of our worship starts and stops with God, period. 
saying that God is the one and only God that we worship seems very, very simple to us. However, at the time that these commandments were made, that these were, these were crafted up on the mountain, etched by the finger of God into these stone tablets, it was a very different time. The Israelites came out of Egypt where their worship wasn't just one God but many. Egypt was known for its polytheistic beliefs where they worshipped over 2,000 gods and then they had several primary gods that they believed were the most powerful. They had a God for prosperity, a God for the Nile River, for crops, for health. Pretty much everything of importance to the Egyptians they had a God for. And they worshipped all of these different gods. The second commandment, while similar to the first, is different. It's an instruction for us to not try to compartmentalize God. Don't try to shrink God down into an idol. We cannot represent our God in any way. And the people of Israel and the Egyptians would worship idols to represent their many gods. Idols made of gold, small idols, large idols. All sorts of physical representations of who they thought their gods were. However, God is instructing his people, do not attempt to bottle me up. He's telling them, I am. I am so great that nothing you could fathom would be an acceptable representation of me in all my splendor. I am that I am and nothing on earth, all of which I created, by the way, all of which I created, nothing could represent me and the greatness that resides in me. This rule is so important that God threatens to wipe out the entire people group of the Israelites because of their idolatry sins. Exodus 32, verses 9 to 10 says, Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. At this point, God is very, very angry with the people of Israel. He is so upset that he threatens to annihilate them. God's chosen people have decided to stray away from the way God has instructed them, and now God's wrath is about to be rained down on them. So we pick up in 32 verse 11. But Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster and you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to you and your descendants, and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. We can pick up a few things from this passage. It's extremely important that we follow these commandments God has given us. But why is it so important? Is it important because God's going to annihilate us if we don't follow his commandments? That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's important because Moses followed these commandments. He put God first and because of his closeness to God, because he daily chose to put God first, he was able to approach the throne on behalf of the people of Israel. He put God first and he changed the mind of God. Did you hear that? So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened for his people. Do you think Moses could have done that if he hadn't put God first? Do you think he'd have the audacity to ask that big of God? He changed God's mind because of the relationship he had with God. 
I leave you with this. How can we put God first? What are we supposed to do? What is the key to this? If you're looking for that perfect answer, the one thing that will help you follow these commandments and try to make your life from this point forward a cakewalk, easy, everything will be peachy. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint, but I don't have that for you today. What I do have are the words of Jesus in Matthew 38. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all its demands of prophets are based on these two commandments. What happens when we do this? When we put God first, when we love God, when we see our neighbors as ourselves? Could Jesus have been onto something? Could he have known that if we follow the greatest commandment, the first and most important commandment, to love God and put him first, could he have known that the rest of the law would, would come naturally? Maybe by following these commands, Jesus knew that by following the first two rules that God set for us, to put him first and to have no idols, maybe he knew that we would start to live the lives God intended for us. If you're putting God first, the rest of the commandments, the rules that God set forth, will come naturally. If you're putting God first, you're certainly going to think twice about using his name in a profane manner. If you're putting God first, you'll be serious about taking a day to rest and worship him with a body of believers. If you put God first, it's going to be easier for you to honor your parents. You're not going to murder. And adultery? Are you kidding me? Take the chance to soil the beautiful illustration of Christ's bond with his people? You wouldn't even think about it. Stealing? If you put God first, you'll see that he is all you need and all your needs are met through him and you'll have no reason to steal. You won't have a desire to lie. You won't want what your neighbor has when you realize that God is all you need. Could it be that Jesus knew if we follow these commandments that we could live our lives to the fullest? Perhaps you're still looking at these commandments as another set of rules keeping you from being free. But to you I say this, if you think that the commandments are here, that the Bible is here to keep us from being free, that freedom isn't always doing what you want. Freedom is doing what God created you to do, and the commandments are here for that. The commandments are here to help us live the life that God intended when he crafted you, when he breathed breath into your lungs for the first time. The commandments and the word of God are here to help us live the lives that God intended. Would you make the decision to put God first before your feet ever hit the ground each morning? Would you make the decision to put God first? Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your commandments. Thank you for Moses and his faithfulness. Thank you for his commitment to you, God, and the example that he was. Lord, thank you for the commandments, God. Thank you that they're not just a set of rules, but, but God, these are guidelines to help us live the life that you want us to live, Lord. God, I pray that you would help us remember these commandments, God. I pray that as we go through the next few weeks, that you would set these commandments 
in our hearts, just like you set them in the stone, Lord, that we would not sin against you, God, and that our relationships with you and with our fellow believers, God, would be strengthened because of them. In Jesus' name, amen.